0: Turn in your Bible, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Stand if you would. Hear God's word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is God's word. Pray with me once more. Both for those who listen and for the one who speaks, be gracious of God. Not to leave us alone, but to work in us, and to disrupt us and to shape us in the image of your son and change us with the power of your word overcome the shakiness of my voice today for its in Jesus name that we pray amen you see It is that time of year again for prognostication. People will be setting up their brackets to see if they can, I don't know, predict who's going to win a college basketball tournament. The closer we get to Easter, you see two kind of things happening at the same time. On the one hand, you see a lot of emphasis being made on helping to make a convincing case that Jesus is the Christ. On the other side, you see all of the people that say religion just needs to go. Now, I will—I will be the first to admit to you—the um, church believes some crazy things, and I'm under no illusion that the mixture of the church believing crazy things like God sent his son in the flesh into the world to be our substitute and sacrifice for sin in order to reconcile us to himself so that through the spirit bringing who brought Jesus back from death to life might also bring us back from death to life so that we will inherit this world and rule with God in this world forever. Okay, that doesn't bumper sticker super well. But I also recognize that all of the people that are looking around right now at the changing cultural landscape that the church finds itself in and saying that the church is in trouble. Here's here's the thing the thing that's going to save the church is not a flashy new website. is not some sort of fancy new program. It is not some sort of Messiah complex where we feel like if we hire just the right person or do just the right thing, the church is going to be fine. Do you know what actually sustains the church? What sustains the church is the crazy stuff that we believe The fact that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. As one author put it, Jesus is found when there is no hope and no sensible route of escape. Jesus is present to those who have no future and no plan B, no other options but faith. The church exists to declare and demonstrate that Jesus came to rescue, redeem, and resurrect alienated and dead sinners. We, in fact, declare that truth when we say, as many churches would say in this Lenten and Eastertide season, great is the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. If what we do, if who we are, is not based in those divine mysteries, but is instead based in something else, whether it is the allure of a convincing speaker or the glitz and glamour of what we do. We may be lots of things, but we're not a church. At least not a church that the New Testament would recognize. So how do we get the faith to believe all of that? I want to talk about two things today and I'm going to change the second point of the outline in your program because why not? So the first thing is the origin of faith and then the second thing is the choice that we must make. So the origin of faith, where does faith come from and the choice that we must make. First of all, Let's talk about this idea of faith for just a second. Um, Our faith is in Jesus Christ. That is to say, it is not a feeling. It's not a thought. It is in a person. It is in the witness of the ones who walked with Christ and declared that this Jesus, the long awaited rescuer of God's people, came in the flesh, bled and died, and rose in victory over sin and death for the salvation of God's people. If you look over what what John has said throughout 1 John. As one commentator notes, Christian faith believes in the Jesus of 1 John, the one uh, with whom believers enjoy fellowship in in, uh, chapter 1 verse 3. The righteous one who makes intercession with the Father, chapter 2 verse 1. The one whom the Antichrist denies, chapter 2 verse 22 the one in whom in whose name alone people are commanded to trust chapter 3 verse 23 and the one who has come from god in the flesh chapter 4 verse 2 but where does the faith come from to believe this stuff if it's not a thought, if it's not a feeling, if it's not any of that, where does faith come from to actually believe all of this? Well, that's where we get into our text. But before we do, I'll tell you as a pastor, I hear this a lot. And it breaks my heart because people, um, people have the wrong idea of where faith comes from, and then they beat themselves up. They think that faith comes as, as something that they have to bring to the table, They think that faith is something that they have to conjure up. And so when their faith gets shaken, they think, I'm doing something wrong. I am not a faithful Christian. I have done something wrong because I have lost faith. And I just want to tell you that, according to John, that couldn't be further from the truth. Faith comes from God. Now look, here's how I get that. In chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, I'm going to try and not be super nerdy here for just a second. Try. Try. the Greek word there for born carries with it the force of a uh, past action with present consequences. You with me? Past action, present consequences. Continuous present consequences. So being born of God is something that God did, right? There was the moment that you believed, hallelujah, the scales fell off of your eyes, the, the deafness came out of your ears and the hardness came out of your, your heart. But guess what? You didn't decide to believe. God did something in you to bring you from death to life. How do I know that? Dead people don't make good decisions. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You didn't all of a sudden say, I'm dead, but I really should be alive. We should do something about that body. No, God did something in you. And so everyone who has been born of God, that past action that has present consequences, what's the present consequence? Belief. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God belief is the present action. So John is saying that because of something that happened in the past, being born of God, we presently believe. Faith then is a result of our new birth. Faith is a result of our new birth. Faith is given to us by God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. I had a really long theological conversation with somebody one time about whether Paul meant that grace is a gift of God or faith. Right here, John would say, "Mm, it's both. Grace and faith, all gifts from God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith is given to us by God. It's not something that we conjure up. And we see this happen all the time where we see God break into the stories of our life and change people in profound and deep ways. So a couple of years ago, you remember... um, brought my friend Jim out here. Jim was my pastor when I served in uh, a church in grad school while I was in Florida. So Jim, Jim lived, lived a, a pretty rough life uh, for a good part of his teens and, and 20s um, to the point that he had to spend some time in federal prison for stuff. Um, it was while he was in jail someone coming in to do prison ministry came to share the gospel with his cellmate. And they shared the gospel. Jim was on his rack. The cellmate didn't believe. But God spoke to Jim that night, even though he wasn't looking to believe, and did something in him, and changed him, and brought him from death to life. That's how God works. He does the impossible with the unthinkable. You don't conjure up faith. God created faith in you. God gave you new life by putting his spirit within you. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is what it means to believe that everyone who has been brought from death to life is changed by this we know that we love the children of god when we love god and obey his commandments another way of saying this is that you are that you're born again so i remember growing up hearing a uh, hearing a preacher speak in a pretty derogatory way about people talking about being born again and i grew up in a mainline tradition it wasn't Evangelical, so um, being born again tends to carry with it a stigma, right? If you hear if you hear people talking about the born again folks, um, you know the stigma could be people that are, um, you know, well, it's, it's pejorative. It's 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 not. It's not a super kind phrase that they're using. So the phrase being born again may be unhelpful, but the underlying concept is rock solid biblical. To be born of God means that God has changed your heart, given you faith, changed you from a God hater to a God lover. To be born of God is not to, uh, to refer to a subset of Christianity. It is Christianity, right? There's no such thing as the born again Christians and then the rest of the Christians. You're either born of God Thus, a Christian, or you're not. Okay. So this new birth that happens in us is, um, again, this is the bedrock. This is the origin that changes how we view the law of God, right? Because we view the law of God no longer as our death sentence, but as a track to life. Look at what John says. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Listen. To say that now God wants you to just sort of slavishly obey these rules and give up on enjoying everything in your life has in fact missed the fundamental heart of God. If you believe that God has made you just to be sort of this miserable human being that has to keep a bunch of religious rules because God's a killjoy, you've missed the heart of God. Now, beloved, listen, we were made to love God. We were made to obey God. We were made to follow in the path that God has given us. This is where life is actually found. And so the obedience to the commands of God are not burdensome. No longer are they something to be rebelled against. No, they're the track that guides our life to who and what we were designed to be. Our our obedience to God's commands are not the basis for God's love for us, but rather a fruit of God's love in us. We're motivated by grace, not by fear. We're motivated by grace, not by fear, but the reason that we can tend to feel the burden of the commands of God is because there's still indwelling sin within us, right? There is still that battle of, do I really want to love God today? Eh. Indwelling sin causes us to lose sight of the gospel. What's the good news? The good news is that we are fully known, fully accepted, fully loved by God, because Jesus has come and lived and died in our place. And because we know this, we don't have to resort to fear. We don't have to resort to, does God love me? Have I done enough? Have I messed it up too badly? that somehow our imperfections will cause God to love us less or not love us at all. But it's just this constant reminder, this constant declaration of the gospel. And look, this is part of why worship is so incredibly important. This is why we come in here as a needy and forgetful people that must be recalibrated and re- reset to hear and respond to the good news of the gospel that we who were once alienated and strangers from God who had no hope and no life apart from him have been brought from death to life because of his grace are continuing to be brought from death to life by his grace and will one day no longer know any sort of sad thing in our life because of his grace. This is why we come to be re-emplotted on the story of redemption that God is working on in all of our lives. And so we come and we're reminded that it is the light of God that causes him not to be able to stand to look upon sin. And the love of God that sent Jesus to stand in our place. And because he's done this. We've received Jesus' perfect record of righteousness as our own. It is not just as if I've never sinned, but also just as if I had always obeyed. The commands of God are for our good because they represent the heart of God, which is good, and the design for which we were made, which is good. So when we, so what we see of people who have been born from above are that they believe in the Christ that the apostles bore witness to, have within them love for others, and are obedient to God's command. Right? Verse one, they believe in the Jesus that God has revealed in the scriptures. Verse two, they love the children of God. Verse three, they obey his commandments. Verse four, for everyone who has been born of God Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Here's the thing. We're reminded of the victory that is ours in Jesus. Listen, Christians don't fight for victory. Christians fight from victory. If the faith that is in you is not something that you've conjured up, but it is in fact from God in you, and God has said that we should take heart because greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world, the Christian is then not operating out of a place of, oh my gosh, is the world going to overcome us? We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What can man do? What can man do to the one who has been bought by the Son of God, who has been made alive in the Son of God? What can anyone do ultimately? We don't fight for, we fight from victory. We live in a world that would almost wish to silence what we believe as long as we, what we do serves the common good and but just don't make any absolute truth claims, right? Be a good person, that's cool. Don't talk about why you're a good person. But to be a Christian, as one author put it, is this. Faith that does not lead to love is meaningless. We heard that in James, didn't we? And love that's not based on faith is powerless. It's powerless. You try loving someone in in a biblical way. You try loving out of self-giving, self-sacrifice, my life for yours apart from faith. You won't do it. You won't do it. Because by your nature, you're wired to to be um, self-preserving and self-sustaining. It is only in faith. It is only in the power of the gospel. It is only in Christ that you are able to love people with a my life for yours type of love. Faith in God's son means that the victory is ours over the loveless world, its dictator, the devil, and the deceivers in the antichrists that we will see all around us. So John's made this argument, and he said, this is where the origin of faith is. This is where the origin of love is. This is where the origin of obedience is. And then he wants to know what you're going to do about it. So here's the choice. Here's the choice that we have to make. Keep going with me. Verses 6 through 9 are incredibly confusing. There are a variety of different interpretations I'm going to give you the one that I think I I see the most and I think makes the most sense. And I don't want you to get too, too far hung up on this. In arguing a court case, the forensic evidence that you would need in the ancient Near East to argue a court case would be the eyewitness testimony of two or three witnesses. What John is doing here is John is marching in three witnesses, that point to the truth, the veracity of what he has been declaring all throughout this letter. So look at what he says. The blood and the water uh, symbolize the two events in Jesus' incarnational ministry that summarize the totality of his ministry. So Jesus was baptized, and at that baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and the Father's voice rang out, and we see this in Matthew chapter 3. The father's voice rang out and said, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, so this is the water. This is the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry was there at his baptism. What about the blood? Jesus was crucified for the sins of God's people. He bled and died to take away our sins as the hymn loudly resounds. But not only was he the sacrifice who bled and died, but in glory he was raised, proving that the sacrifice was complete and acceptable. So the blood that John speaks of here was the blood that Jesus shed as an atonement for yours and my sin. What of the Spirit? The Spirit is who is at work in us, just as we spoke of a moment ago, giving us faith. God speaks further testimony to us through these three things and proves beyond all doubt that Jesus is the Christ who sought us, saved us, and is sanctifying us. Verse 8. The spirit and the water and the blood and these things and these three things agree. Verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men. So look at what John's saying here. He said, okay, if you are going to say that in a courtroom, the testimony of three witnesses is valid to prove beyond all doubt the claim that you're making and proving in court, how much more so then is the testimony of God? Look at what he says. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So I was reminded of of a show, uh, the late show with Stephen Colbert. Now, look, I need to tell you about my affinity for late night shows. My grandfather, who uh, my mom's parents lived 10 minutes from us growing up, and so we were over at their house constantly. My grandfather loved um, late-night shows, but rarely would he ever stay up to watch them. They're on the East Coast. These shows aired late. Um, so he would set his VCR, and he would tape them. And he would um, tape episodes of The Tonight Show Johnny Carson, and so I got to see, sit with him and watch uh, Carson uh, Leno, when Leno came on. Um, and so I've always just kind of watching late-night shows kind of brings me to a, me to a tender spot because it reminds me of sitting with Grandpa and watching late-night shows. All that to say, <clears throat> Stephen Colbert was an interesting pick for CBS to succeed David Letterman. He had had another show on Comedy Central where he played a character, and everybody thought that's going to be kind of a weird switch to go from that show to, uh, to CBS. Here's the thing about Colbert. He is a devout follower of Jesus, and uh, has made no uh, no small no small point about that. In fact, there was one interview that he gave before taking on the uh, taking on the reins of the show, uh, where he was telling an interviewer, uh, he, he said, "To be a fool for Christ is to love." He talks about the moment when he encountered a Gideon's Bible and it changed his life. This particular episode pitted Colbert against a very different type of fella. So Bill Maher came on. So Bill Maher is a not a Christian type guy has made it his industry to make sure that everyone knows how silly he thinks religion is. My friend Dustin Messer wrote this. He said, uh, the plain fact, according, according to Bill Maher, the plain fact is religion must die for mankind to live. The hour is getting very late to be able to indulge in having key decisions made by religious people, by irrationalists, by those who would steer the ship of state, not by a compass, but by the equivalent of reading the entrails of a chicken. Dustin goes on to write this. He says, "Uh, Bill Maher's sentiment is strong. He hedges no bets. Like many of the so-called new atheists, Maher uh, does not want the religious and the irreligious to play nice or even go their separate ways. No, Marr sees religion as a malignant cancer in need of eradication. To be clear, it's not only those acts of violence committed in the name of religion, which Mar decries, it's religion itself. Marr understands that religious beliefs cannot be contained. They cannot be sealed from the rest of one's thought and behavior. Religion, in Bill Maher's estimation, is a menace to society precisely because it cannot be properly private. Faith is inherently public because it claims to define truth, goodness, beauty, and indeed all of reality. Thus, we can't have people serving food, much less holding public office who hold such convictions. After all, Who knows when and where those beliefs might come out. Enter the episode where Bill Maher sits across from Stephen Colbert. In this particular episode, Colbert, instead of steering away from the things which he knows his guest and he have no agreement on, goes right for it it's a fascinating clip if you can go back it's, i know it's on youtube go back and watch it he invites him to believe in jesus on air his audience is sitting there going we don't know what's happening right now back to the funny stuff guys he offers him to return to the church he says mar you were raised catholic come back to the church Marr tries to laugh him off. And he says, I'm getting a, I was getting a lecture. And, and, and Colbert says, you weren't getting a lecture, you're getting an invitation. When someone says, do you want Italian tonight? Do you say, how dare you lecture me on whether or not I should eat Italian food? I was inviting you to dinner. Instead of going for the cheap joke or the political crack or whatever else, he presses in. And what he does is he gives... Bill Maher, right there on the air, he gives him Pascal's wager. Do you know Pascal's wager? Blaise Pascal, mathematician, uh, founder of much that we know about uh, both geometry, but also music, also a philosopher. His wager was this. If God does not exist, then those who are religious have enjoyed foolishness for a lifetime But at the end of the day, so what? They lose nothing. If God does exist, then the irreligious are making the gamble because they have everything to lose in the life to come. And so Colbert on the air says, Bill, what if I'm right? What if I'm right and God exists and we know him through his son, Jesus? John is giving us here, not Pascal's wager, but he's giving us nonetheless, you have to do something with this. You have to do something with this. John is saying in verses 10 through 12, believe in Jesus or forfeit eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. John says this is it. This is life. Not life in general. Not good feelings. Not thoughts and prayers. That life specific is in God's son, Jesus. And because that is true, we must do something with it. Jesus doesn't fit on a coexist bumper sticker. Jesus doesn't reside in the private recluses of a closeted faith. Bill Maher knows this, and this is why he's so dead set against it. This leaves us with having to know today what we believe. It's not sufficient to say if we were to ask you if you're married or not. Are you married? I think so. That does not play well on your anniversary or any other significant event with your spouse. Stop it. If I were to ask you, are you married? The answer is yes or no. John is asking you, do you believe? The answer is yes or no. Jesus is an exclusivist. And he demands exclusive claims on your life. Not just the checkbox of your religious preference. It is not enough to say that I'm a Christian because it seemed better than all the other options. That's not what belief is. That's not what John's talking about. To say that you believe is to say that your life has been undone and reordered by the living Christ who is in you, at work in you, changing you and transforming you from the person that you were to the person that you now are and will transform you ultimately to the person that you will yet become. If Jesus does not have exclusivity over every part of your life, not just your religious identity, you make God out to be a liar, verse 10, and you don't have life, verse 12. Friends, listen. Vague faith won't save us. Weak faith will. Weak faith Strong faith. Believe in Jesus. Trust him for what he alone can do. Believe his promises. Are you a Christian? It's not enough to say, I think so. It's not enough to say, I think so. You either are or you aren't. If you are, listen. Listen. Rejoice that God is not done with you yet. Rejoice that he loves you far more than you could know. And if you're not a Christian, listen, today is the day of salvation. You're here, and you're here for a reason. So receive the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Follow him, and let him change you.